Lord, thank you. Again, we can gather in this place and receive from you, worship you, hear your word, to come to this table. Lord, we are so blessed to live where we live. We thank you for our church family. We thank you for the other churches, Lord, where your name is lifted up, where you are worshipped this morning. Lord, bless them. Bless us as we seek to read your word and to understand it this morning in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, These two chapters, these are probably my favorite chapters of the Bible. Maybe. They're up there. There's a lot of chapters, so, you know, that's saying something. (laughs) But the end is so good. As I was thinking about this, preaching this portion, I was trying to remember a time in my life where uh, I just realized now everything's new. Like now, from here on in, it's different. Uh, Something's different. Not just like I bought a car, you know. That's kind of new. Kind of not. Uh, not just when we bought our first home. That's kind of kind of new too. But like an event where now it is new. Now life, we, you know, we're not we we can't really go back. Uh, for me, I remember when our kids were born. That's a big one that comes to mind. I still remember walking home after Rowan was born. Uh, we lived just two blocks away, and it was February, and the the cherry trees were in bloom in Vancouver, and it was just so beautiful out, and just sort of being overcome with this feeling of like we're parents oh my gosh you know <laughs> and it's so good and it was just really just this beautiful moment um as children we get these moments it, it may be when when you have a new brother or sister come home and you suddenly realize oh man like now it's really different like now i'm not the center of attention right it's new from here on in or discovering some new place or activity for the first time as kids that can be like now it's new going to school I might come with a bit of mixed feelings. I think as adults, we sometimes look back on things like a wedding day, whether it was your wedding or not. It could have been a sibling's wedding. Now it's different. Now it's new from here on in. Of course, the birth of a child's a big one. Whether it's your own children or someone else's children, it's now these relationships are all changed. It's all new. I think a big one, too, is that recovery, the recovery of someone who's been fighting a sickness for a long time. That sense of good newness that they've come out the other end. Any of you have uh, a family or you yourselves have fought with cancer and you've kind of come out the other end of that. You know what that feels like. That we're out the other side of it. From here on, everything is different. And there's a sense of wonder that comes with experiencing that sense of newness. And I think John wants us to pick up as we look at this first chapter uh, of the last two chapters, chapter 21, last two chapters deal with the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, we're reaching the end of like the epic, not just the end of Revelation, but this is the end of the epic storyline of the Bible. And John paints this breathtaking picture of a new heaven and a new earth. And I think what's really fascinating is the key moments in our own lives that we would look to, things like weddings and the birth of children, or the recovery from sickness, John actually uses all those same images to convey this sense of wonder and joy uh, in the new creation. Like if you look at verse 7, he says, the one who conquers will have his heritage, I'll be his God, and he will be my son. This is a new birth. Verse 2 says, I saw the holy city prepared like a bride. This is a wedding. 
Verse 4 says there'll be no more mourning or pain. It's the great recovery after being sick for so long. And the newness of this life is like the newness of a baby's arrival and a wedding and a long recovery from death to life, all kind of wrapped into one. He's making all things new. It's a new heaven and a new earth. It's a new Jerusalem coming. And, of course, it's a new people. I love how N.T. Wright says it's a new people who've woken up to find themselves beyond the reach of death, tears, and pain, for the first things have passed away. It's just, it's this beautiful end, not just to the story of Revelation, but to the story of the Bible and, of course, to our own stories, that God will make all things new. And this passage actually, it also confronts some of our assumptions sometimes about the Bible and about the story of Scripture and about being a Christian. Uh, Brian and I were talking, I said last week was, was potentially the most controversial passage as we dealt with kind of the, an overview of the millennium in chapter 20. I said, once we've done that, now we're smooth sailing into the best part. It's the end, chapter 21, 22. Then I said, well, I guess there's a little bit of debate about what exactly that looks like, even though we're past the millennium bit. And it's true. I think many Christians, you know, we expect and talk and believe that the final hope for us as believers is just getting to heaven, getting to heaven. And we often say, uh, we, we accept Jesus into our hearts so we can get to heaven when we die. And that's true. Those who die now are with Christ in his presence. Um, and you might expect, well, that's what's being described here. But what we're seeing in chapter 21 is not heaven as it is now, so to speak. And I think to assume that is to actually miss out on a lot of the, the glory and the wonder of what Revelation is telling us. What we get here, folks, is, is a reminder, actually, that the Christian story doesn't end with just going to heaven when you die. Uh, this idea of we're just going to go to this perfect world and the earth is sort of this shabby, second-rate thing. But instead, as we read through the sort of the whole scope of scriptures, we, dis we discover the earth is a good part of God's good creation. And when in chapter 20, when the devil and evil and Satan are defeated forever, what we don't get in chapter 21 are a bunch of Christians just sort of floating in clouds, you know, playing harps, eating cream cheese, whatever it might be, right? We, we, just, we don't have that. That's not our final state with him. It's not disembodied souls. We find instead that God is making a new heaven and a new earth, and God makes his dwelling with us. That means that God's space, heaven, and our space, earth, are coming together to be wed and joined together completely at long last. And that, that word dwell in verse 3 is, is absolutely crucial. The dwelling place of God is with man. That takes us all the way back to chapter 1 of John's gospel, right? The word Jesus became flesh and what? He dwelled with us. You might say he tabernacled. It's the same word. He tabernacled in our midst and we beheld his glory. And so what Revelation is telling us is that what God did in Jesus coming to us, an unwelcoming people, he's going to do again at long last, but now on a cosmic scale. He's coming to live forever in our midst 
and heaven and earth join together in Jesus. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 10. He says, God's plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in Christ, in heaven and in earth. And friends, that's why the final scene of the Bible is not humans going up to heaven, though that can be a popular and sort of misleading assumption. What we have instead is Jesus coming down to dwell with us. That's the end. It's actually much more than that because the bride, the new Jerusalem, the new people of God is also coming down from heaven, right? And you might say, well, how can that be? And at first, at first glance, it's a bit strange until we remember, well, part of it is all of those who have gone before are coming with Jesus to come dwell in the new heavens and the new earth. And I think if we remember, too, what Paul says in Colossians 3, 3, he reminds us that when we belong to Jesus the Messiah, our life is hidden with Christ on high. We continue our life on earth, but there is a secret life that is hidden and kept in God that will be fully revealed like a fresh gift from him on that last day. All that to say, what we don't have, again, is bodiless people somehow, somewhere. What we have instead is people in resurrected bodies living and ruling with Jesus. And we'll get into that more next week and the week after. This sense of newness, God dwelling with us. It might also give the sense that God is sort of throwing away his first creation as though to sort of try again a second time. But what I, I think, and there's different scholars kind of differ on how exactly to read some of this, but I think if we look at Revelation 21 and 22 in the context of the whole Bible, what you don't get is an annihilation of creation, but you get the utter transformation of creation. See, God is abolishing everything that would bring sort of the horrible, disgusting, tragic effects of human sin to bear on his creation. And there's a question, well, is it, is it uh, all things new or all new things? If it's all new things, then it's a totally new thing. But if it's all things made new, then we're talking about a transformation of what's there. It's a question of, is there continuity between the new and the old, right? And so you get passages like, heaven and earth will pass away. And that sounds a lot like it just being destroyed, right? <laughs> just burn it up. But Paul uses the same language to talk about you when you came to Jesus. And when you came to Jesus, he says, the old has passed, the new has come. You didn't suddenly burn up, <laughs> right? I trust in Jesus, and now my body just burned away. <laughs> and now you get a new one. <laughs> no, that didn't happen. The point is the the dramatic change that happens in the believer when he comes to Jesus is so complete and so transformative, you have to use this kind of language to describe it. The old is gone. The new has come. The old's passed away. You are a new creation, but your molecules didn't actually change. Paul says you're a new creation. You use this language to describe the enormity of what salvation actually does to us when we come to Jesus. Maybe you can look at other places as well. What about the earth being burned up in Second Peter? Someone say, well, hang on. That's actually referring more to those that destroy God's creation. But also in the context, 
of the flood, when we talk about now God's not going to destroy the earth with water, he's going to destroy it with fire. Well, when God sends the flood, does he actually dissolve the whole cosmos? Or does he somehow renew and transform the cosmos that is here? So there's a question about continuity and discontinuity. And I think one of the best places we can go is actually Jesus' own resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is God's affirming yes to the physical body. To have physical resurrected bodies means that we exist in some sort of physical place, some sort of physical spiritual place. And when Jesus comes in his resurrected body, it's a different body in some sense. He just sort of appears, right? It's different. But he comes with his scars. There's a sense of continuity. And what's the main thing they think of him? Well, he's a ghost. And so what's he do? He says, give me the fish. I'm going to eat some fish. There, ghosts don't eat. Right? It's him. And he's physically there with them. The physical's not bad, folks. It's just broken. And God loves his creation so much, he will not see it destroyed completely. He will transform it utterly because it longs for its redemption. That's what we read in Romans 8. I like what J.I. Packer says. He says, without a body, you can't have relationships. And without relationships, you can't have meaning. So our bodies are good and resurrected and remade and transformed in Christ. But so also, it would seem, his creation. Creation is God's cosmic temple. It's his good world. We need to slow down sometimes and read the Bible for what it says, I think. Right? For God so loved my soul? No. God so loved human beings? No. For God so loved the cosmos that he sent his son. God loves his creation. And when Jesus teaches us to pray, we pray, may your kingdom come and take us away with you. No, but we act that way sometimes, don't we? We can live that way. No, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. And that's why it ends with this beautiful promise of God coming finally and fully to dwell with us in a new earth. How exactly you parse that out isn't entirely clear here, but I think it points to a sort of transformation and renewal. Again, like I mentioned, Romans 8, creation groans, right? Waiting for its destruction. No, for its redemption. That will be revealed when we too are transformed. Listen to what it says in Romans 8. Creation waits in hope, and creation itself will be set free from its existence? No, from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation waits for freedom because of its bondage to sin. It's groaning in childbirth, waiting to be set free. Folks, God's bringing a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, transformed. I think transformed creation is probably the best way to put it, to make his dwelling with us. And what's removed here are the death and the tears and the pain and all that causes them. All the hatred and oppression and chaos in our world. And that's, what's, that's what it means by no more sea. All through the Bible, the sea is this picture of sort of primordial chaos, the, the forces of, of destruction. That's why in Genesis 1, right? I've mentioned this before, you have the spirit brooding 
over the waters of chaos, sort of keeping it at bay, ready to act. That's why the flood waters in Noah's day is almost like a, uh, a destruction of the world because God's letting those chaos waters from Genesis 1 come back over his creation. He's starting over. It's a picture of God's cha- uh, destruction or God allowing destruction and chaos to come back in. That's why the Red Sea is so significant, right? They've come up against the, the very picture of watery chaos once again, which going back to the beginning of Exodus is the watery chaos that their children are thrown into and destroyed. And when Israel comes up against the Red Sea, it's a picture of coming up against that dark force of chaos. And what does God do? He does what he does in Genesis 1. He blows over the surface of the water and makes a path through it, right? It's a picture of God's control over the chaos and over the sea. Of course, where does the beast come from in Revelation? He comes out of the ocean. That's exactly why. And now we're being told there's no more sea. It doesn't mean necessarily there's no oceans in the new creation. What it means is that the chaos which threatens God's plan and threatens God's people that God has allowed for a time to exist is now defeated finally and fully forever. There's no more places for monsters to emerge in the new creation. In fact, the only water here we get is our tears. It's our tears. It's the tears of the wounds of humanity. It's the tears of all the death and pain and wounding you and I have ever experienced. All All the tears that have been cried over the heartache of the world of our own brokenness, of our own loss. And now the one who, who sits on the throne comes down to personally wipe away the tears from every eye. And then this startling, this startling thought at the end, right? Behold, behold, the dwelling place of God is with humanity. We are not going anywhere. God's coming here. Is it all transformed and made new? Yes, of course. God is committed to his people. and He's committed to his good world. What does that mean for us today? I think it means, folks, we can live through the brokenness of our own lives, knowing where we are headed, not just in an escapist sense, but knowing the one who will come down to wipe my tears is the one who lives inside me even now today. And I can experience his peace and his rest and his renewal here and now before that utter end. And I think as we, as we think about God's plans for our future, this transformation of his creation, this coming to live with us, this sense of new birth, of wedding, of recovery at long last, it reminds me of the mission we have as the church to invite people into life. We don't just invite people into a way of thinking. We invite them into a relationship with Jesus. And it's in him that we find abundant life. The life that we see here of living in in harmony and in fellowship with God, this beautiful picture of no more crying, no more mourning, him wiping the tears from our eyes, that is the hope folks that we that we carry with us as we go into our day-to-day lives the hope that god will restore and renew all things the hope that he's got me even in the midst of my own brokenness 
and the mess of my own life. I had a really hard day yesterday, just really difficult day personally. Um, Sarah can attest to it, just um, really fighting my own anxiety. And I long for the day when he will wipe the tears from my eyes. And he does it here and now. I know that here and now, but I will know it fully when he comes again. Folks, we have such a hope to offer to the world. Let's not keep it to ourselves. It's too good to keep to ourselves. Let's be willing to share it with those who need to hear the message of hope, especially in this time. And as we come to this table, let's remember it's Jesus who gives us our hope and our salvation. He's the one we turn to, that we're remembering, but who also remembers us. We talked two weeks ago about him putting us together. Let's be put together again by him so we can go into the world and point them to the one who will ultimately put them back together too. Let's pray. Worship team, you guys are welcome to come as we head to the table. Lord, we thank you that you hold us and you keep us and your heart is to renew and to restore, to wipe the tears from our eyes. Lord, so often we need to be reminded of your hope for us, your life for us. Jesus, so often we are aware of the brokenness and the mourning in our world. We mourn ourselves. We ourselves are broken. Jesus, at this table, at the cross, you gave your life to put us and to put your world back together again. And Lord, as we come and take this bread and this cup, it is a symbolic action of saying, yes, Lord Jesus, our hope and life are found in you alone, not in the voices of the world around us, not in the culture, but in you alone. Lord, you're the way maker. Show us, Lord, the way through this difficult time. Show us, Lord, the way through the situations in our families. Show us, Lord, the way through the heartache and the brokenness and the sin in our own lives as we put our hope in you and look to you. We ask this in your name. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you, in remembrance of me. It represents the forgiveness of sins. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death and his goodness until that day he returns. And we sit with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, upon these gifts, as we set our hearts upon you again, as we look forward to the new heavens and new earth, as we look forward, Lord, to you dwelling with us, as we look forward, Lord, to you wiping the tears from every eye. Lord, may we live into that reality as we choose to be people of peace and love and hope in your broken world here today. And, Jesus, may you bring that sense of renewal, of new life, of joy to bear in us so we can share that 
with those around us. We thank you, Lord, that you call each of us to yourself. By name, Lord, we receive it today. In your name, amen.